Achalu, pa for you. Welcome to the Richard Cast. Sir. This is Rich Outfield and you're listening to my podcast, The Rich Outcast. And if you are a supporter of me on Patreon, you're breathing rarefied air, ladies and gentlemen. But recently I mentioned to them in my Patreon address, I send a, a, a message. It's like a mini episode, uh, in some cases like a full episode of The Rich Outcast every month that only they hear. And in the recent one, I talked about getting up one day and I felt ambitious. I felt like, oh, wow, I, I'm going to achieve something today. I'm going to try to create art in some way. And uh, yesterday was a day like that. I didn't know what to do. I considered sitting down and trying to write something. The library was closed, otherwise I'd have driven right over there and sat down and forced myself to write as I used to do. And I, and I did do that this week for one day. I went over there and once I got there, I thought, oh, geez, do I really want to write? But I made myself do it. Anyway, last night it was closed. And so I thought, what should I do? And then I remembered that months ago I had started recording Pigeons from Hell by Robert E. Howard. And I stopped partway through. I can go into it after the story of why I stopped, but there's, there's a certain word in the story written in 1934 that I was just like, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to commit to this. But then the word was repeated over and over again, and I just thought, oh, boy, what should I do? And, and I stopped and I called or emailed Marshall Latham, who's a friend of mine. He's a co-podcaster. He's got the Journey Into podcast. He and I do a Star Wars Delusions of Grandeur podcast from time to time together. He's a good guy, a moral guy, and he often runs older stories. Well, he really likes Edgar Allan Poe, let's put it that way. And I asked him what I should do, and he said, well, just don't run it. And that upset me, because that's not the answer that I wanted. But ultimately, that's what I decided to do. And then yesterday, I remembered that. And I also remembered that I had done a search, and there was an alternate version of Pigeons from Hell. I was going to refer to it as a bowdlerized version, which is when they remove the objectionable material so that everyone can enjoy it. So I sat down and I started to record that version last night and I grabbed the book. I, my friend Jeff, before he moved to Germany, gave me a book of Howard stories and it has Pigeons from Hell in it. And I grabbed the book, which is originally what I was recording from, to compare because there were a couple of wonky lines in the story. And by wonky, I just mean I, they didn't quite work. I didn't know what they meant. They didn't feel like, well, they didn't feel like modern English. I'm sorry, but I'm just thinking of the right words to say. No, 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 not, not that modern English. I know they don't sound the way I plan them to be. Fiction. 
But if you wait around a while, I'll make you fall for me. I promise you, I promise you, I will. Wow, is that what he says? Fall for me? I've never understood that lyric. But thank you, Fake Sean. It didn't sound like modern English, so I opened my book. And except for that one word, everything was retained exact. So it's not a Baudelarized version at all. It's just got a substitute word for that word, which is no longer uh, acceptable. It's, it's, the word is so fraught. Well, we can talk about it later. In fact, we will talk about it later. I'm going to run Robert E. Howard's Pigeons from Hell in its entirety. I considered breaking it up because it is not a short story, but in its entirety, now and then meet me on the other side and we will talk about the story, why I chose it, and whatever else jumps into my head. Pigeons from Hell Written by Robert E. Howard Narrated by Rish Outfield Part 1 The Whistler in the Dark Griswell awoke suddenly, every nerve tingling with a premonition of imminent peril. He stared about wildly, unable at first to remember where he was or what he was doing there. Moonlight filtered in through the dusty windows, and the great empty room with its lofty ceiling and gaping black fireplace was spectral and unfamiliar. Then, as he emerged from the clinging cobwebs of his recent sleep, he remembered where he was and how he came to be there. He twisted his head and stared at his companion sleeping on the floor near him. John Branner was but a vaguely bulking shape in the darkness that the moon scarcely grayed. Griswell tried to remember what had awakened him. There was no sound in the house, no sound outside except the mournful hoot of an owl far away in the piney woods. Now... He captured the elusive memory. It was a dream, a nightmare so filled with dim terror that it had frightened him awake. Recollection flooded back, vividly etching the abominable vision. Or was it a dream? Certainly it must have been, but it had blended so curiously with recent actual events that it was difficult to know where reality left off and fantasy began. Dreaming he had seemed to relive his past few waking hours in accurate detail. The dream had begun abruptly as he and John Branner came in sight of the house where they now lay. They'd come rattling and bouncing over the stumpy, uneven old road that led through the pinelands, he and John Branner wandering far afield from their New England home in search of vacation pleasure. They had sighted the old house, with its balustrated galleries rising amidst a wilderness of weeds and bushes, just as the sun was setting behind it. It dominated their fancy, rearing black and stark and gaunt against the low, lurid rampart of sunset, barred by the black pines. They were tired, sick of bumping and pounding all day over woodland roads. The old deserted house stimulated their imagination with its suggestion of antebellum splendor an ultimate decay. They left the automobile beside the ruddy road, 
and as they went up the winding walk of crumbling bricks, almost lost in the tangle of rank growth, pigeons rose from the balustrades in a fluttering, feathery crowd, and swept away with a low thunder of beating wings. The oaken door sagged on broken hinges. Dust lay thick on the floor of the wide, dim hallway, on the broad steps of the stair that mounted up from the hall. They turned into a door opposite the landing, and entered a large room, empty, dusty, with cobwebs shining thickly in the corners. Dust lay thick over the ashes in the great fireplace. They discussed gathering wood and building a fire, but decided against it. As the sun sank, darkness came quickly, the thick, black, absolute darkness of the Pinelands. They knew that rattlesnakes and copperheads haunted southern forests, and they did not care to go groping for firewood in the dark. They ate frugally from tins, then rolled in their blankets fully clad before the empty fireplace, and went instantly to sleep. This, in part, was what Griswell had dreamed. He saw again the gaunt house looming stark against the crimson sunset, saw the flight of the pigeons as he and Branner came up the shattered walk. He saw the dim room in which they presently lay, and he saw the two forms that were himself and his companion, lying wrapped in their blankets on the dusty floor. Then, from that point, his dream altered subtly, passed out of the realm of the commonplace, and became tinged with fear. He was looking into a vague, shadowy chamber, lit by the gray light of the moon, which streamed in from some obscure source, for there was no window in that room. But in the gray light he saw three silent shapes that hung suspended in a row, and their stillness and their outlines woke chill horror in his soul. There was no sound, no word, but he sensed a presence of fear and lunacy crouching in a dark corner. Abruptly he was back in the dusty high-ceilinged room before the great fireplace. He was lying in his blankets, staring tensely through the dim door and across the shadowy hall, to where a beam of moonlight fell across the balustraded stair, some seven steps up from the landing. And there was something on the stair, a bent, misshapen, shadowy thing that never moved fully into the beam of light but a dim yellow blur that might have been a face was turned toward him, as if something crouched on the stair, regarding him and his companion. Fright crept chilly through his veins, and it was then that he awoke, if indeed he had been, asle if indeed he had been asleep. <clears throat> he blinked his eyes. The beam of moonlight fell across the stair, just as he had dreamed it did, but no figure lurked there. Yet his flesh still crawled from the fear the dream or vision had roused in him. His legs felt as if they had been plunged in ice water. He made an involuntary movement to awaken his companion, when a sudden sound paralyzed him. It was the sound of whistling on the floor above. Eerie and sweet it rose, not carrying any tune, but piping shrill and melodious. Such a sound in a supposedly deserted house was alarming enough, but it was more than the fear of a physical invader that held Griswell frozen. 
He could not himself have defined the horror that gripped him. But Branner's blankets rustled, and Griswell saw he was sitting upright. The figure bulked dimly in the soft darkness, his head turned toward the stair as if the man were listening intently. More sweetly and more subtly evil rose that weird whistling. John, whispered Griswell from dry lips. He had meant to shout, to tell Branner that there was somebody upstairs, somebody who could mean them no good, that they must leave the house at once. But his voice died dryly in his throat. Branner had risen. His boots clumped on the floor as he moved toward the door. He stalked leisurely into the hall and made for the lower landing, merging with the shadows that clustered black about the stair. Griswell lay incapable of movement, his mind a whirl of bewilderment. Who was that whistling upstairs? Why was Branner going up those stairs? Griswell saw him past the spot where the moonlight rested, saw his head tilted back as if he were looking at something Griswell could not see above and beyond the stair. But his face was like that of a sleepwalker. He moved across the bar of moonlight and vanished from Griswell's view, even as the latter tried to shout to him to come back. A ghastly whisper was the only result of his effort. The whistling sank to a lower note, died out. Criswell heard the stairs creaking under Branner's measured tread. Now he had reached the hallway above, for Griswell heard the clump of his feet moving along it. Suddenly, the footfalls halted, and the whole night seemed to hold its breath. Then an awful scream split the stillness, and Griswell started up, echoing the cry. The strange paralysis that had held him was broken. He took a step toward the door, then checked himself. The footfalls were resumed. Branner was coming back. He was not running. The tread was even more deliberate and measured than before. Now the stairs began to creak again. A groping hand, moving along the balustrade, came into the bar of moonlight. Then another, and a ghastly thrill went through Griswell as he saw that the other hand gripped a hatchet, a hatchet which dripped blackly. Was that Branner who was coming down that stair? Yes. The figure had moved into the bar of moonlight now, and Griswell recognized it. Then he saw Branner's face, and a shriek burst from Griswell's lips. Branner's face was bloodless, corpse-like. Gouts of blood dripped darkly down it. His eyes were glassy and set, and blood oozed from the great gash which cleft the crown of his head. Griswell never remembered exactly how he got out of that accursed house. Afterward, he retained a mad, confused impression of smashing his way through a dusty, cobwebbed window, of stumbling blindly across the weed-choked lawn, gibbering his frantic horror. He saw the black wall of the pines and the moon floating in a blood-red mist in which there was neither sanity nor reason. Some shred of sanity returned to him as he saw the automobile beside the road, in a world gone suddenly mad, that was an object reflecting prosaic reality. But even as he reached for the door, a dry, chilling whirr sounded in his ears, and he recoiled from the swaying, undulating shape that arched up from its scaly coils on the driver's seat and hissed sibilantly at him, darting a forked tongue in the moonlight. 
With a sob of horror, he turned and fled down the road, as a man runs in a nightmare. He ran without purpose or reason. His numbed brain was incapable of conscious thought. He merely obeyed the blind, primitive urge to run, 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 until he fell exhausted. The black walls of the pines flowed endlessly past him, so he was seized with the illusion that he was getting nowhere. But presently a sound penetrated the fog of his terror, the steady, inexorable patter of feet behind him. Turning his head, he saw something loping after him. Wolf or dog, he could not tell which, but its eyes glowed like balls of green fire. With a gasp, he increased his speed, reeled around the bend in the road, and heard a horse snort, saw it rear and heard its rider curse, saw the gleam of blue steel in the man's lifted hand. He staggered and fell, catching at the rider's stirrup. For God's sake, help me, he panted. The thing, it killed Branner, it's coming after me, look! Twin balls of fire gleamed in the fringe of bushes at the turn of the road. The rider swore again, and on the heels of his profanity came the smashing report of his six-shooter, again and yet again. The fire sparks vanished, and the rider, jerking his stirrup free from Griswell's grasp, spurred his horse at the bend. Griswell staggered up, shaking in every limb. The rider was out of sight only a moment. Then he came galloping back. Took to the brush. Timberwolf, I reckon, though I never heard of one chasing a man before. Do you know what it was? Griswell could only shake his head weakly. The rider, etched in the moonlight, looked down at him, smoking pistols still lifted in his right hand. He was a compactly built man of medium height, and his broad-brimmed planter's hat and his boots marked him as a native of the country as definitely as Griswell's garb stamped him as a stranger. What's this all about, anyway? I don't know, Griswell answered helplessly. My name's Griswell. John Branner, my friend who was traveling with me, we stopped at a deserted house down the road to spend the night. Something... At the memory, he was choked by a rush of horror. My God, he screamed, I must be mad. Something came and looked over the balustrade of the stair, something with a yellow face. I thought I dreamed it, but it must have been real. Then somebody began whistling upstairs, and Branner rose and went up the stairs, walking like a man in his sleep or hypnotized. I heard him scream, or someone screamed, then he came down the stair again with a bloody hatchet in his hand. Oh my God, sir, he was dead. His head had been split open. I saw brains and clotted blood oozing down his face. And his face was that of a dead man. But he came down the stairs. As God is my witness, John Branner was murdered in that dark upper hallway. And then his dead body came stalking down the stairs with a hatchet in its hand to kill me. The rider made no reply. He sat his horse like a statue, outlined against the stars. And Griswell could not read his expression, his face shadowed by his hat brim. You think I'm mad, he said hopelessly. Perhaps I am. I don't know what to think, answered the writer. If it was any house but the old Blassenville Manor, well, we'll see. My name's Buckner. I'm sheriff of this county. Took a prisoner over to the county seat in the next county and was riding back late. 
he swung off his horse and stood beside Griswell, shorter than the lanky New Englander, but much harder knit. There was a natural manner of decision and certainty about him, and it was easy to believe that he would be a dangerous man in any sort of a fight. "'Are you afraid to go back to the house?' he asked. And Griswell shuddered, but shook his head, the dogged tenacity of Puritan ancestors asserting itself. "'The thought of facing that horror again turns me sick. But poor Branner!' he choked again. "'We must find his body. My God!' he cried, unmanned by the abysmal horror of the thing. "'What will we find?' If a dead man walks, what? We'll see. The sheriff caught the reins in the crook of his left elbow and began filling the empty chambers of his big blue pistol as they walked along. As they made the turn, Griswell's blood was ice at the thought of what they might see lumbering up the road with a bloody, grinning death mask. But they saw only the house looming spectrally among the pines down the road. A strong shudder shook Griswell. God, how evil that house looked against those black pines. It looked sinister from the very first when we went up the broken walk and, and saw those pigeons fly up from the porch. Pigeons? Buckner cast him a quick glance. You saw the pigeons? Why, yes, scores of them perching on the porch railing. They strode on for a moment in silence before Buckner said abruptly, I've lived in this country all my life. I've passed the old Blassenville place a thousand times, I reckon, at all hours of the day and night. But I never saw a pigeon anywhere around it or anywhere else in these woods. There were scores of them, repeated Griswell, bewildered. I've seen men who swore they'd seen a flock of pigeons perched along the balusters just at sundown, said Buckner slowly. Negroes, all of them, except one man, a tramp. He was building a fire in the yard, aiming to camp there that night. I passed along there about dark, and he told me about the pigeons. I came back by there the next morning. The ashes of his fire were there, and his tin cup, and skillet where he'd fried pork, and his blankets looked like they'd been slept in. And nobody ever saw him again. That was... Twelve years ago. The blacks say they can see the pigeons, but no black would pass along this road between sundown and sunup. They say the pigeons are the souls of the Blassenvilles, let out of hell at sunset. The Negroes say the red glare in the west is the light from hell, because then the gates of hell are open and the Blassenvilles fly out. Who were the Blassenvilles? asked Griswell, shivering. They owned all this land here. French-English family. Came here from the West Indies before the Louisiana Purchase. The Civil War ruined them, like it did so many. For some were killed in the war. Most of the others died out. Nobody's lived in the manor since 1890, when Miss Elizabeth Blassenville, the last of the line, fled from the old house one night like it was a plague spot. I never came back to it. This year, Otto. They halted beside the car, and Griswell stared morbidly at the grim house. Its dusty panes were empty and blank, but they did not seem blind to him. 
It seemed to him that ghastly eyes were fixed hungrily on him through those darkened panes. Buckner repeated his question. Yes, be careful. There's a snake on the seat, or, or there was. Not there now, grunted Buckner, tying his horse and pulling an electric torch out of the saddlebag. Well, let's have a look. He strode up the broken brick walk as a matter-of-factly as if he were paying a social call on friends. Griswell followed close at his heels, his heart pounding suffocatingly. A scent of decay and moldering vegetation blew on the wind, and Griswell grew faint with nausea that rose from a frantic abhorrence of these black woods, these ancient plantation houses that hid forgotten secrets of slavery and bloody pride and mysterious intrigues. He had thought of the South as a sunny, lazy land washed by soft breezes laden with spice and warm blossoms where life ran tranquilly to the rhythm of black folk singing in sun-bathed cotton fields. But now he had discovered another, unexpected side, a dark, brooding, fear-haunted side, and the discovery repelled him. The oaken door sagged as it had before, the blackness of the interior was intensified by the beam of Buckner's light playing on the sill. That beam sliced through the darkness of the hallway and roved up the stair, and Griswell held his breath, clenching his fists, but no shape of lunacy peered down at them. Buckner went in, walking light as a cat, torch in one hand, gun in the other. As he swung his light into the room across the stairway, Griswell cried out, and cried out again, almost fainting with the intolerable sickness at what he saw. A trail of blood drops led across the floor, crossing the blankets Branner had occupied, which lay between the door and those in which Griswell had lain. And Griswell's blankets had a terrible occupant. John Branner lay there, face down, his cleft head revealed in merciless clarity in the steady light. His outstretched hand still gripped the haft of a hatchet, and the blade was embedded deep in the blanket and the floor beneath, just where Griswell's head had lain when he slept there. A momentary rush of blackness engulfed Griswell. He was not aware that he staggered or that Buckner caught him. When he could see and hear again, he was violently sick and hung his head against the mantel, retching miserably. Buckner turned the light full on him, making him blink. Buckner's voice came from behind the blinding radiance, the man himself unseen. Griswell, you've told me a yarn that's hard to believe. I saw something chasing you, but it might have been a timber wolf or a mad dog. If you're holding back anything, you better spill it. What you told me won't hold up in any court. You're bound to be accused of killing your partner. I'll have to arrest you. If you give me the straight goods now, I'll make it easier. Now, didn't you kill this fellow, Branner? Wasn't it something like this? You quarreled, he grabbed a hatchet and swung it to you, but you dodged and then let him have it. Griswell sank down and hid his face in his hands, his head swimming. Great God, man, I didn't murder John. But we've been friends since we were children in school together. I've told you the truth. I don't blame you for not believing me, but God help me, it is the truth. 
The light swung back to the gory head again, and Griswell closed his eyes. He heard Buckner grunt. I believe this hatchet in his hand is the one he was killed with. Blood and brains plastered on the blade, and hairs sticking to it. Hairs exactly the same color as his. This makes it tough for you, Griswell. How so? the New Englander asked dully. Knocks any plea of self-defense in the head. Branner couldn't have swung at you with this hatchet after you split his skull with it. You must have pulled the axe out of his head, stuck it into the floor, and clamped his fingers on it to make it look like he'd attacked you. And it would have been damned clever if you'd used another hatchet. But I didn't kill him, groaned Griswell. I have no intention of pleading self-defense. That's what puzzles me. Buckner admitted, frankly, straightening. What murderer would rig up such a crazy story as you've told me to prove his innocence? Average killer would have told a logical yarn, at least. Hmm. Blood drops leading from the door. The body was dragged. No, couldn't have been dragged. The floor isn't smeared. Well, you must have carried it here after killing him in some other place, but in that case, why isn't there any blood on your clothes? Well, of course, you could have changed clothes and washed your hands. But the fellow hasn't been dead long. He walked downstairs and across the room, said Griswell hopelessly. He came to kill me. I knew he was coming to kill me when I saw him lurching down the stair. He struck where I would have been if I hadn't awakened. That window, I burst out at it. You see, it's broken. I see. But if he walked then? But if he walked then, why isn't he walking now? I don't know. I'm too sick to think straight. I've been fearing that he'd rise up from the floor where he lies and come after me again. When I heard that wolf running up the road after me, I thought it was John chasing me. John running through the night with his bloody axe and his bloody head and his death grin. His teeth chattered as he lived that horror over again. Buckner let his light play across the floor. The blood drops lead into the hall. Come on, we'll follow them. Griswell cringed. They lead upstairs. Buckner's eyes were fixed hard on him. Are you afraid to go upstairs with me? Are you afraid to go upstairs with me? Griswell's face was gray. Yes. But I'm going, with you or without you. The thing that killed poor John may still be hiding up there. Stay behind me, ordered Buckner. If anything jumps us, I'll take care of it. But for your own sake, I warn you that I shoot quicker than a cat jumps, and I don't often miss. If you got any ideas of laying me out from behind, forget them. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Resentment got the better of his apprehension, and this outburst seemed to reassure Buck and this outburst seemed to reassure Buckner more than any of his protestations of innocence. I want to be fair, he said quietly. I haven't indicted and condemned you in my mind already. If only half of what you're telling me is the truth, you've been through a hell of an experience, and I don't want to be too hard on you. 
but you can see how hard it is for me to believe all you've told me. Griswell wearily motioned for him to lead the way, unspeaking. They went out into the hall, paused at the landing. A thin string of crimson drops, distinct in the thick dust, led up the steps. Man's tracks in the dust, grunted Buckner. Go slow. I've got to be sure of what I see, because we're obliterating them as we go up. Hmm. One set going up, one coming down. Same man. Not your tracks. Branner was a bigger man than you are. Blood drops all the way. Blood on the banisters like a man had laid his bloody hand there. A smear of stuff that looks... brains. He walked down the stair. A dead man, shuddered Griswell. Groping with one hand, the other gripping the hatchet that killed him. Or was carried, muttered the sheriff. But if somebody carried him, where are the tracks? They came out into the upper hallway, a vast, empty space of dust and shadows where time-crusted windows repelled the moonlight and the ring of Buckner's torch seemed inadequate. Griswell trembled like a leaf. Here, in darkness and horror, John Branner had died. Somebody whistled up here, he muttered. John came, as if he were being called. Buckner's eyes were blazing strangely in the light. The footprints lead down the hall, he muttered. Same as on the stair, one set going, one coming. Same prince, Judas! Behind him, Griswell stifled a cry, for he had seen what prompted Buckner's exclamation. A few feet from the head of the stair, Branner's footprints stopped abruptly, then returned, treading almost in the other tracks, and where the trail halted there was a great splash of blood on the dusty floor, and other tracks met it. Tracks of bare feet, narrow but with splayed toes. They too receded in a second line from the spot. Buckner bent over them, swearing. The tracks meet, and where they meet there's blood and brains on the floor. Branner must have been killed on that spot with a blow from the hatchet. Bare feet coming out of the darkness to meet shod feet. Then both turned away again. The shod feet went downstairs. The bare feet went back down the hall. He directed his light down the hall. The footprints faded into darkness beyond the reach of the beam. On either hand, the closed doors of chambers were cryptic portals of mystery. Suppose your crazy tale was true, Buckner muttered, half to himself. These aren't your tracks. They look like a woman's. Suppose somebody did whistle, and Branner went upstairs to investigate. Suppose somebody met him here in the dark and split his head. The signs and tracks would have been, in that case, just as they really are. But if that's so, why isn't Branner lying here where he was killed? Could he have lived long enough to take the hatchet away from whoever killed him and stagger downstairs with it? No! Recollection gagged Griswell. I saw him on the stair. He was dead. No man could live a minute after receiving such a wound. I believe it, muttered Buckner. But it's madness. Or else it's too clever. Yet what sane man would think up and work out such an elaborate and utterly insane plan to escape punishment for murder 
when a simple plea of self-defense would have been so much more effective. No court would recognize that story. Well, let's follow these other tracks. They lead down the hall. Here, what's this? With an icy clutch at his soul, Griswell saw the light was beginning to grow dim. This battery is new, muttered Buckner, and for the first time Griswell caught an edge of fear in his voice. Come on, out of here, quick! The light had faded to a faint red glow. The darkness seemed straining into them, creeping with black cat feet. Buckner retreated, pushing Griswell stumbling behind him as he walked backward, pistol cocked and lifted, down the dark hall. In the growing darkness, Griswell heard what sounded like the stealthy opening of a door. And suddenly, the blackness about them was vibrant with menace. Griswell knew Buckner sensed it as well as he, for the sheriff's hard body was tense and taut as a stalking panther's. But without haste, he worked his way to the stair and backed down it, Griswell preceding him and fighting the panic that urged him to scream and burst into mad flight. A ghastly thought brought icy sweat out on his flesh. Suppose the dead man were creeping up the stair behind them in the dark, face frozen in the death grin, blood-caked hatchet lifted to strike. This possibility so overpowered him that he was scarcely aware when his feet struck the level of the lower hallway, and he was only then aware that the light had grown brighter as they descended until it now gleamed with its full power. But when Buckner turned it back up the stairway, it failed to illuminate the darkness that hung like a tangible fog at the head of the stair. The damn thing was conjured, muttered Buckner. Nothing else. It couldn't act like that naturally. Turn the light into the room, begged Griswell. See if John, if John is... He could not put the ghastly thought into words, but Buckner understood. He swung the beam around, and Griswell had never dreamed that the sight of the gory body of a murdered man could bring such relief. He's still there, grunted Buckner. If he walked after he was killed, he hasn't walked since. But that thing... Again, he turned the light up the stair and stood chewing his lip and scowling. Three times he half-lifted his gun. Griswell read his mind. The sheriff was tempted to plunge back up that stair, take his chance with the unknown. But common sense held him back. I wouldn't have a chance in the dark, he muttered. And I've got a hunch the light would go out again. He turned and faced Griswell squarely. There's no use dodging the question. There's something hellish in this house, and I believe I have an inkling of what it is. I don't believe you killed Branner. Whatever killed him is up there. Now, there's a lot about your yarn that don't sound sane, but there's nothing sane about a flashlight going out like this one did. I don't believe that thing upstairs is human. I never met anything I was afraid to tackle in the dark before, but I'm not going up there until daylight. It's not long until dawn. We'll wait for it out there on that gallery. The stars were already paling when they came out on the broad porch. Buckner seated himself on the balustrade, facing the door, his pistol dangling in his fingers. Griswell sat down near him and leaned back against a crumbling pillar. 
He shut his eyes, grateful for the faint breeze that seemed to cool his throbbing brain. He experienced a dull sense of unreality. He was a stranger in a strange land, a land that had become suddenly imbued with black horror. The shadow of the noose hovered above him, and in that dark house lay John Branner with his butchered head. Like the figments of a dream, these facts spun and eddied in his brain until all merged in a gray twilight as sleep came uninvited to his weary soul. He awoke to a cold white dawn and full memory of the horrors of the night. Mists curled about the stems of the pines, crawled in smoky wisps up the broken walk. Buckner was shaking him. Wake up! It's daylight! Griswell rose, wincing at the stiffness of his limbs. His face was gray and old. I'm ready. Let's go upstairs. I've already been. Buckner's eyes burned in the early dawn. I didn't want to wake you up. I went as soon as it was light. I found nothing. The tracks of the bare feet. Gone. Gone? Yes, gone. The dust had been disturbed all over the hall, from the point where Branner's tracks ended, swept into corners. No chance of tracking anything there now. Something obliterated those tracks while we sat here, and I didn't hear a sound. I've gone through the whole house. Not a sign of anything. Griswell shuddered at the thought of himself sleeping alone on the porch while Buckner conducted his exploration. What shall we do? He asked listlessly. With those tracks gone, there goes my only chance of proving my story. We'll take Branner's body into the county seat, answered Buckner. Let me do the talking. If the authorities knew the facts as they appear, they'd insist on you being confined and indicted. I don't believe you killed Branner, but neither a district attorney, judge, nor jury would believe what you told me or what happened to us last night. I'm handling this thing my own way. I'm not going to arrest you until I've exhausted every other possibility. Say nothing about what's happened here when we get to town. I'll simply tell the district attorney that John Branner was killed by a party or parties unknown and that I'm working on the case. Are you game to come back with me to this house and spend the night here sleeping in that room as you and Branner slept last night? Griswell went white, but answered as stoutly as his ancestors might have expressed their determination to hold their cabins in the teeth of the Pequots. I'll do it. Let's go then. Help me pack the body out to your auto. Griswell's soul revolted at the sight of John Branner's bloodless face in the chill white dawn and the feel of his clammy flesh. The gray fog wrapped wispy tentacles about their feet as they carried their grisly burden across the lawn. Part 2. The Snake's Brother Again the shadows were lengthening over the Pinelands, and again two men came bumping along the old road in a car with a New England license plate. Buckner was driving. Griswell's nerves were too shattered for him to trust himself at the wheel. He looked gaunt and haggard, and his face was still pallid. The strain of the day spent at the county seat was added to the horror that still rode his soul like the shadow of a black-winged vulture. He had not slept 
had not tasted what he had eaten. I told you I'd tell you about the Blastonvilles, said Buckner. They were proud folks, haughty, and pretty damn ruthless when they wanted their way. They didn't treat their slaves as well as the other planters did. Got their ideas in the West Indies, I reckon. There was a streak of cruelty in them, especially Miss Celia, the last one of the family to come to these parts. That was long after the slaves had been freed, but she used to whip her mulatto maid just like she was a slave, the old folks say. The Negro said when a Blassenville died, the devil was always waiting for him out in the Black Pines. Well, after the Civil War, they died off pretty fast, living in poverty on the plantation, which was allowed to go to ruin. Finally, only four girls were left, sisters, living in the old house and eking out a bare living with a few blacks living in the old slave huts and working the fields on the share. They kept to themselves, being proud and ashamed of their poverty. Folks wouldn't see him for months at a time. When they needed supplies, they sent a negro to town after them. But folks knew about it when Miss Celia came to live with them. She came from somewhere in the West Indies where the whole family originally had its roots. A fine, handsome woman, they say, in her early thirties. But she didn't mix with folks any more than the girls did. She brought a mulatto maid with her and the Blassenville cruelty cropped out in her treatment of this maid. I knew an old man years ago who swore he saw Miss Celia tie this girl up to a tree, stark naked, and whip her with a horsewhip. Nobody was surprised when she disappeared. Everybody figured she'd run away, of course. Well, one day in the spring of 1890, Miss Elizabeth, the youngest girl, came into town for the first time and maybe a year. She came after supplies, said the blacks had all left the place. Talked a little more, too, a bit wild. Said Miss Celia had gone without leaving any word. Said her sisters thought she'd gone back to the West Indies, but she believed her aunt was still in the house. She didn't say what she meant. Just got her supplies and pulled out for the manor. A month went past, and a black came into town and said that Miss Elizabeth was living at the manor alone, said her three sisters weren't there anymore, that they left one by one without giving any word or explanation. She didn't know where they'd gone and was afraid to stay there alone, but didn't know where else to go. She'd never known anything but the manor and had neither relatives nor friends, but she was in mortal terror of something. The black said she locked herself in her room at night and kept candles burning all night. It was a stormy spring night when Miss Elizabeth came tearing into town on the one horse she owned, nearly dead from fright. She fell from her horse in the square. When she could talk, she said she'd found a secret room in the manor that had been forgotten for a hundred years. And she said there she found her three sisters, dead and hanging by their necks from the ceiling. She said something chased her and nearly brained her with an axe as she ran out the front door, but somehow she got to the horse and got away. She was nearly crazy with fear and didn't know what it was that chased her. Said it looked like a woman with a yellow face. About a hundred men rode out there right away. They searched the house from top to bottom, but they didn't find any secret room. 
or the remains of the sisters. But they did find a hatchet sticking in the door jamb downstairs with some of Miss Elizabeth's hair stuck on it, just as she'd said. She wouldn't go back there and show them how to find the secret door. I almost went crazy when they suggested it. When she was able to travel, the people made up some money and loaned it to her. She was still too proud to accept charity, and she went to California. She never came back, but later it was learned, when she sent back to repay the money they'd loaned her, that she'd married out there. Nobody ever bought the house. It stood there just as she'd left it, and as the years passed, folks stole all the furnishings out of it. Poor white trash, I reckon. A negro wouldn't go about it. But they came after sunup and left long before sundown. What did the people think about Miss Elizabeth's story? asked Griswell. Well, most folks thought she'd gone a little crazy living in that old house alone. But some people believed that mulatto girl, Joan, didn't run away after all. They believed she'd hidden in the woods and glutted her hatred of the Blastonvilles by murdering Miss Celia and the three girls. They beat up the woods with bloodhounds, but never found a trace of her. If there was a secret room in the house, she might have been hiding there, if there was anything to that theory. She couldn't have been hiding there all these years, muttered Griswell. Anyway, the thing in the house now isn't human. Buckner wrenched the wheel around and turned into a dim trace that left the main road and meandered off through the pines. Where are you going? There's an old negro that lives off this way a few miles. I want to talk to him. We're up against something that takes more than white man's sense. The black people know more than we do about some things. This old man is nearly a hundred years old. His master educated him when he was a boy, and after he was freed he traveled more extensively than most white men do. They say he's a voodoo man. Griswell shivered at the phrase, staring uneasily at the green forest walls that shut them in. The scent of the pines was mingled with the odors of unfamiliar plants and blossoms, but underlying all was a reek of rot and decay. Again, a sick abhorrence of these dark, mysterious woodlands almost overpowered him. Voodoo, he muttered. I'd forgotten about that. I never could think of black magic in connection with the South. To me, witchcraft was always associated with old, crooked streets in waterfront towns overhung by gabled roofs that were old when they were hanging witches in Salem, dark, musty alleys where black cats and other things might steal at night. Witchcraft always meant the old towns of New England to me. But all this is more terrible than any New England legend. These somber pines, old deserted houses, lost plantations, mysterious black people, old tales of madness and horror. God, what frightful ancient terrors there are on this continent fools call young. Here's old Jacob's hut, announced Buckner, bringing the automobile to a halt. Griswell saw a clearing and a small gray cabin squatting under the shadows of the huge trees. The pines gave way to oaks and cypresses, bearded with gray trailing moss, and behind the cabin lay the edge of a swamp 
that ran away under the dimness of the trees, choked with rank vegetation. A thin wisp of blue smoke curled up from the stick and mud chimney. He followed Buckner to the tiny stoop, where the sheriff pushed open the leather-hinged door and strode in. Griswell blinked in the comparative dimness of the interior. A single small window let in a little daylight. An old negro crouched beside the hearth, watching a pot stew over the open fire. He looked up as they entered, but did not rise. He seemed incredibly old. His face was a mass of wrinkles, and his eyes, dark and vital, were filmed momentarily at times, as if his mind wandered. Buckner motioned Griswell to sit down in a string-bottomed chair, and himself took a rudely made bench near the hearth, facing the old man. Jacob, he said bluntly, it's time for you to talk. I know you know the secret of Blassenville Manor. I've never questioned you about it, because it wasn't in my line. But a man was murdered there last night, and this man here may hang for it unless you tell me what haunts that old house of the Blastonvilles. The old man's eyes gleamed, then grew misty, as if clouds of extreme age drifted across his brittle mind. The Blastonvilles, he murmured, and his voice was mellow and rich, his speech not the patois of the piney woods darky. They were proud people, sirs, proud and cruel. Some died in the war. Some were killed in duels. The men folks, sirs. Some died in the manor. The old manor. With the... His voice trailed off into unintelligible mumblings. What of the manor? asked Buckner patiently. Miss Celia was the proudest of them all, the old man muttered. The proudest and the cruelest. The black people hated her. Joan most of all. Joan had white blood in her. And she was proud too. Miss Celia whipped her like a slave. What is the secret of Blassenville Manor? Persisted Buckner. The film faded from the old man's eyes. They were dark as moonlit wells. What secret, sir? I do not understand. Yes, you do. For years that old house has stood there with its mystery. You know the key to its riddle. The old man stirred the stew. He seemed perfectly rational now. Sir, life is sweet, even to an old black man. You mean somebody would kill you if you told me? But the old man was mumbling again, his eyes clouded. Not somebody, no human, no human being. The black gods of the swamps. My secret is inviolate, guarded by the big serpent, the god above all gods. He would send a little brother to kiss me with his cold lips, a little brother with a white crescent moon on his head. I sold my soul to the big serpent when he made me maker of Zuvembis. Buckner stiffened. I heard that word once before, he said softly, from the lips of a dying black man when I was a child. 
What does it mean? Fear filled the eyes of old Jacob. What have I said? No, no, I, I said nothing. Zuvembes, prompted Buckner. Zuvembes, mechanically repeated the old man, his eyes vacant. A Zuvembe was once a woman. On the slave coast they know of them. The drums that whisper by night in the hills of Haiti tell of them. The makers of Zuvembes are honored by the people of Dambala. It is death to speak of it to a white man. It is one of the snake gods' forbidden secrets. You speak of the Zuvembes, said Buckner softly. I must not speak of it, mumbled the old man, and Griswell realized that he was thinking aloud, too far gone in his dotage to be aware that he was speaking at all. No white man must know that I danced in the black ceremony of the voodoo and was a maker of zombies and zuvembies. The big snake punishes loose tongues with death. A zuvembi is a woman, prompted Buckner. Was a woman, the old negro muttered. She knew I was a maker of zuvembies. She came and stood in my hut and asked for the awful brew, the brew of ground snake bones and the blood of vampire bats and the dew from a night hawk's wings and other elements unnameable. She had danced in the black ceremony. She was ripe to become a Zuvembi. The black brew was all that she needed. The other was beautiful. I could not refuse her. Who? demanded Buckner tensely. But the old man's head was sunk on his withered breast, and he did not reply. He seemed to slumber as he sat. Buckner shook him. You gave a brew to make a woman a Zuvembi. What is a Zuvembi? The old man stirred resentfully and muttered drowsily. A Zuvembi is no longer human. It knows neither relatives nor friends. It is one with the people of the black world. It commands the natural demons, owls, bats, snakes, and werewolves, and can fetch darkness to blot out a little light. It can be slain by lead or steel, but unless it is slain thus, it lives forever and it eats no such food as humans eat. It dwells like a bat in a cave or an old house. Time is not to the Zuvembi. An hour, a day, a year, all the same. All is one. It cannot speak human words, nor think as a human thinks, but it can hypnotize the living by the sound of its voice. And when it slays a man, it can command his lifeless body until the flesh is cold. As long as the blood flows, the corpse is its slave. Its pleasure lies in the slaughter of human beings. And why should one become a Zuvembi? asked Buckner softly. Hate, whispered the old man. Hate, revenge. 
Was her name Joan? murmured Buckner. It was as if the name penetrated the fogs of senility that clouded the voodoo man's mind. He shook himself, and the film faded from his eyes, leaving them hard and gleaming as wet black marble. Joan, he said slowly, I have not heard that name for the span of a generation. I seem to have been sleeping, gentlemen. I do not remember. I ask your pardon. Old men fall asleep before the fire like old dogs. You ask me of, of Blassenville Manor? Sir, if I were to tell you why I cannot answer you, you would deem it mere superstition. Yet the white man's God be my witness. As he spoke, he was reaching across the hearth for a piece of firewood, groping among the heaps of sticks there and his voice broke in a scream as he jerked back his hand convulsively, and a horrible, thrashing, trailing thing came with it. Around the voodoo man's arm a mottled length of that shape was wrapped, and a wicked, wedge-shaped head struck again in silent fury. The old man fell on the hearth, screaming, upsetting the simmering pot and scattering the embers, and then Buckner caught up the billet of firewood and crushed that flat head. Cursing, he kicked aside the nodding, twisting trunk, glaring briefly at the mangled head. Old Jacob had ceased screaming and writhing. He lay still, staring glassily upward. "'Dead?' whispered Griswell. "'Dead as Judas Iscariot,' snapped Buckner, frowning at the twitching reptile. "'That infernal snake crammed enough poison into his veins to kill a dozen men his age.' but I think it was the shock and fright that killed him. "'What shall we do?' asked Griswell, shivering. "'Leave the body on that bunk. Nothing can hurt it if we bolt the door so the wild hogs can't get in, or any cat. We'll carry it into town tomorrow. We've got work to do tonight. Let's get going.' Griswell shrank from touching the corpse, but he helped Buckner lift it from the rude bunk and then stumbled hastily out of the hut. The sun was hovering above the horizon, visible in dazzling red flame through the black stems of the trees. They climbed into the car in silence, and went bumping back along the stumpy terrain. He said the big snake would send one of its brothers, muttered Griswell. Nonsense, snorted Buckner. Snakes like warmth, and that swamp is full of them. It crawled in and coiled up among that firewood. Old Jacob disturbed it, and it bit him. Nothing supernatural about that. After a short silence, he said, in a different voice, That was the first time I ever saw a rattler strike without singing. The first time I ever saw a snake with a white crescent moon on its head. They were turning in to the main road before either spoke again. "'You think that the mulatto Joan has skulked in the house all these years?' Griswell asked. "'You heard what old Jacob said,' answered Buckner grimly. "'Time means nothing to a Zuvembi.' As they made the last turn in the road, Griswell braced himself against the sight of Blassenville Manor, looming black against the red sunset. When it came into view, he bit his lip to keep from shrieking. 
the suggestion of cryptic horror came back in all its power. Look, he whispered from dry lips as they came to a halt beside the road. Buckner grunted. From the balustrades of the gallery rose a whirling cloud of pigeons that swept away into the sunset, black against the lurid glare. Part 3 The Call of Zuvembi Both men sat rigid for a few moments after the pigeons had flown. Well, I've seen them at last, muttered Buckner. Only the doomed see them, perhaps, whispered Griswell. That tramp saw them. Well, we'll see returned the southerner tranquilly as he climbed out of the car, but Griswell noticed him unconsciously hitch forward his scabbarded gun. The oaken door sagged on broken hinges. Their feet echoed on the broken brick walk. The blind windows reflected the sunset in sheets of flame. As they came into the broad hall, Griswell saw the string of black marks that ran across the floor and into the chamber marking the path of a dead man. Buckner had brought blankets out of the automobile. He spread them before the fireplace. I'll lie next to the door, he said. You lie where you did last night. Shall we light a fire in the grate? asked Griswell, dreading the thought of the blackness that would cloak the woods when the brief twilight had died. No, you've got a flashlight and so have I. We'll lie here in the dark and see what happens. Can you use that gun I gave you? I suppose so. I never fired a revolver, but I know how it's done. Well, leave the shooting to me, if possible. The sheriff seated himself cross-legged on his blankets and emptied the cylinder of his big blue colt, inspecting each cartridge with a critical eye before he replaced it. Griswell prowled nervously back and forth, begrudging the slow fading of the light as a miser begrudges the waning of his gold. He leaned with one hand against the mantelpiece, staring down into the dust-covered ashes. The fire that produced those ashes must have been built by Elizabeth Blassenville more than forty years before. The thought was depressing. Idly he stirred the dusty ashes with his toe. Something came to view among the charred debris, a bit of paper, stained and yellowed. Still idly, he bent and drew it out of the ashes. It was a notebook with moldering cardboard backs. "'What have you found?' asked Buckner, squinting down the gleaming barrel of his gun. Well, "'Nothing but an old notebook. Looks like a diary. The pages are covered with writing, but the ink is so faded, and the paper is in such a state of decay that I can't tell much about it. How do you suppose it came in the fireplace, without being burned up? Thrown in long after the fire was out, surmised Buckner. Probably found and tossed in the fireplace by somebody who was in here stealing furniture. Likely somebody who couldn't read. Griswell fluttered the crumbling leaves listlessly, straining his eyes in the fading light over the yellowed scrawls. Then he stiffened. Here's an entry that's legible. Listen, he read. I know someone is in the house besides myself, 
I can hear someone prowling about at night when the sun has set and the pines are black outside. Often in the night I hear it fumbling at my door. Who is it? Is it one of my sisters? Is it Aunt Celia? If it is either of these, why does she steal so subtly about the house? Why does she tug at my door and glide away when I call to her? Shall I open the door and go out to her? No, no, I dare not. I am afraid. Oh God, what shall I do? I dare not stay here. But where am I to go? My God, ejaculated Buckner. That must be Elizabeth Blassenville's diary. Go on. I can't make out the rest of the page, answered Griswell. But a few pages further on, I can make out some lines. He read, Why did the Negroes all run away when Aunt Celia disappeared? My sisters are dead. I know they are dead. I seem to sense that they died horribly in fear and agony. But why? Why? If someone murdered Aunt Celia, why should that person murder my poor sisters? They were always kind to the black people. Joan! He paused, scowling futilely. A piece of the page is torn out. Here's another entry under another date. At least I judge it's a date. I can't make it out for sure. The awful thing that the old negress hinted at. She named Jacob Blount and Joan, but she would not speak plainly. Perhaps she feared to... Uh, part of it is gone here. Then, no, no, how can it be she is dead or gone away, yet she was born and raised in the West Indies, and from hints she let fall in the past, I know she delved into the mysteries of the voodoo. I believe she even danced in one of their horrible ceremonies. How could she have been such a beast? And this, this horror, God, can such things be? I know not what to think. If it is she who roams the house at night, who fumbles at my door, who whistles so weirdly and sweetly. No, no, I must be going mad. If I stay here alone, I shall die as hideously as my sisters must have died. Of that I am convinced. The incoherent chronicle ended as abruptly as it had begun. Griswell was so engrossed in deciphering the scraps that he was not aware that darkness had stolen upon them, hardly aware that Buckner was holding his electric torch for him to read by. Waking from his abstraction, he started and darted a quick glance at the black hallway. What do you make of it? What I've suspected all the time, answered Buckner. That mulatto made Joan turn Zuvembi to avenge herself on Miss Celia. Probably hated the whole family as much as she did her mistress. She'd taken part in voodoo ceremonies on her native island until she was ripe, as old Jacob said. All she needed was the black brew. He supplied that. She killed Miss Celia and the three older girls and would have gotten Elizabeth but for chance. She's been lurking in this old house all these years, like a snake in a ruin. But why should she murder a stranger? You heard what old Jacob said, reminded Buckner. Azuvembi finds satisfaction in the slaughter of humans. 
She called Branner up the stair and split his head and stuck the hatchet in his hand and sent him downstairs to murder you. No court will ever believe that, but if we can produce her body, that will be evidence enough to prove your innocence. My word will be taken that she murdered Branner. Jacob said a Zuvembi could be killed. In reporting this affair, I don't have to be too accurate in detail. She came and peered over the balustrade of the stair at us, muttered Griswell. But why didn't we find her tracks on the stair? Maybe you dreamed it. Maybe a Zuvembi can project her spirit. Hell, why try to rationalize something that's outside the bounds of rationality? Let's begin our watch. Don't turn out the light, exclaimed Griswell involuntarily. Then he added, Of course, turn it out. We must be in the dark as... He gagged a bit. As Branner and I were. But fear, like a physical sickness, assailed him when the room was plunged in darkness. He lay trembling, and his heart beat so heavily he felt as if he would suffocate. The West Indies must be the plague spot of the world, muttered Buckner, a blur on his blankets. I've heard of zombies. Never knew before what a Zuvembi was. Evidently some drug concocted by the voodoo men to induce madness in women. That doesn't explain the other things, though. The hypnotic powers, the abnormal longevity, the ability to control corpses. No, Zuvembi can't be merely a madwoman. It's a monster. Something more and less than a human being, created by the magic that spawns in black swamps and jungles. Well, we'll see. His voice ceased, and in the silence, Griswell heard the pounding of his own heart. Outside in the black woods, a wolf howled eerily, and owls hooted, then silence fell again like a black fog. Griswell forced himself to lie still on his blankets. Time seemed at a standstill. He felt as if he were choking. The suspense was growing unendurable. The effort he made to control his crumbling nerves bathed his limbs in sweat. He clenched his teeth until his jaws ached and almost locked, and the nails of his fingers bit deeply into his palms. He did not know what he was expecting. The fiend would strike again. But how? Would it be a horrible, sweet whistling, bare feet stealing down the creaking steps, or a sudden hatchet stroke in the dark? Would it choose him or Buckner? Was Buckner already dead? He could see nothing in the blackness, but he heard the man's steady breathing. The southerner must have nerves of steel. Or was that Buckner breathing beside him? separated by a narrow strip of darkness. Had the fiend already struck in silence and taken the sheriff's place, there to lie in ghoulish glee until it was ready to strike? A thousand hideous fancies assaulted Griswell tooth and claw. He began to feel that he would go mad if he did not leap to his feet, screaming, and burst frenziedly out of that accursed house. Not even the fear of the gallows could keep him lying there in the darkness any longer. The rhythm of Buckner's breathing was suddenly broken, and Griswell felt as if a bucket of ice water had been poured over him. From somewhere above them rose a sound of weird, sweet whistling. 
Griswell's control snapped, plunging his brain into darkness deeper than the physical blackness which engulfed him. There was a period of absolute blankness in which a realization of motion was his first sensation of awakening consciousness. He was running, madly, stumbling over an incredibly rough road. All was darkness about him, and he ran blindly. Vaguely, he realized that he must have bolted from the house and fled for perhaps miles before his overwrought brain began to function. He did not care. Dying on the gallows for a murder he never committed did not terrify him half as much as the thought of returning to that house of horror. He was overpowered by the urge to run, run, run as he was running now, blindly, until he reached the end of his endurance. The mist had not yet fully lifted from his brain, but he was aware of a dull wonder that he could not see the stars through the black branches. He wished vaguely that he could see where he was going. He believed he must be climbing a hill, and that was strange, for he knew there were no hills within miles of the manor. Then above and ahead of him, a dim glow began. He scrambled toward it, over ledge-like projections that were more and more taking on a disquieting symmetry. Then he was horror-stricken to realize that a sound was impacting on his ears, a weird, mocking whistle. The sound swept the mists away. Why, what was this? Where was he? Awakening and realization came like the stunning stroke of a butcher's maul. He was not fleeing along a road or climbing a hill. He was mounting a stair. He was still in Blassenville Manor, and he was climbing the stair. An inhuman scream burst from his lips. Above it, the mad whistling rose in a ghoulish piping of demoniac triumph. He tried to stop, to turn back, even to fling himself over the balustrade. His shrieking rang unbearably in his own ears, but his willpower was shattered to bits. It did not exist. He had no will. He had dropped his flashlight, and he had forgotten the gun in his pocket. He could not command his own body. His legs, moving stiffly, worked like pieces of mechanism detached from his brain, obeying an outside will. Clumping methodically, they carried him shrieking up the stair toward the witch-fire glow shimmering above him. Buckner! he screamed. Buckner! Help! For God's sake! His voice strangled in his throat. He had reached the upper landing. He was tottering down the hallway. The whistling sank and ceased, but its impulsion still drove him on. He could not see from what source the dim glow came. It seemed to emanate from no central focus. But he saw a vague figure shambling toward him. It looked like a woman, but no human woman ever walked with that skulking gait, and no human woman ever had that face of horror, that leering yellow blur of lunacy. He tried to scream at the sight of that face, at the glint of keen steel in the uplifted claw-like hand, but his tongue was frozen. Then something crashed deafeningly behind him, and the shadows were split by a tongue of flame which lit a hideous figure falling backward. Hard on the heels of the report rang an inhuman squawk. In the darkness that followed the flash, Griswell fell to his knees and covered his face with his hands. 
he did not hear Buckner's voice. The southerner's hand on his shoulder shook him out of his swoon. A light in his eyes blinded him. He blinked, shaded his eyes, looked up into Buckner's face, bending at the rim of the circle of light. The sheriff was pale. Are you hurt? God, man, are you hurt? There's a butcher knife there on the floor. I'm not hurt, mumbled Griswell. You fired just in time. The fiend, where is it? Where did it go? Listen. Somewhere in the house, there sounded a sickening flopping and flapping as of something that thrashed and struggled in its death convulsions. Jacob was right, said Buckner grimly. Lead can kill them. I hit her all right. Didn't dare use my flashlight, but there was enough light. When that whistling started, you almost walked over me getting out. I knew you were hypnotized or whatever it is. I followed you up the stair. I was right behind you, but crouching low so she wouldn't see me and maybe get away again. I almost waited too long before I fired, but the sight of her almost paralyzed me. Look! He flashed his light down the hall, and now it shone bright and clear. And it shone on an aperture gaping in the wall where no door had showed before. The secret panel Miss Elizabeth found, Buckner snapped. Come on! He ran across the hallway, and Griswell followed him dazedly. The flopping and thrashing came from beyond that mysterious door, and now the sounds had ceased. The light revealed a narrow, tunnel-like corridor that evidently led through one of the thick walls. Buckner plunged into it without hesitation. Maybe it couldn't think like a human, he muttered, shining his light ahead of him. But it had sense enough to erase its tracks last night so we couldn't trail it to that point in the wall and maybe find the secret panel. There's a room ahead. The secret room of the Blassenvilles. And Griswell cried out, My God! It's the windowless chamber I saw in my dream, with the three bodies hanging. Ah! Buckner's light playing about the circular chamber became suddenly motionless. In that wide ring of light, three figures appeared, three dried, shriveled, mummy-like shapes, still clad in the moldering garments of the last century. Their slippers were clear of the floor as they hung by their withered necks from chains suspended from the ceiling. The three Blassenville sisters, muttered Buckner. Miss Elizabeth wasn't crazy after all. Look, Griswell could barely make his voice intelligible. There, over there in the corner. The light moved, halted. Was that thing a woman once? whispered Griswell. God, look at that face. Even in death, look at those claw-like hands with... Black talons like those of a beast. Yes, it was human, though. Even the rags of an old ballroom gown. Why should a mulatto maid wear such a dress, I wonder? This has been her lair for over forty years, muttered Buckner, brooding over the grinning, grisly thing sprawling in the corner. This clears you, Griswell. A crazy woman with a hatchet. That's all the authorities need to know. God, what a revenge. What a foul revenge. Yet what a bestial nature she must have had in the beginning to delve into voodoo as she must have done.
the mulatto woman, whispered Griswell, dimly sensing a horror that overshadowed all the rest of the terror. Buckner shook his head. We misunderstood old Jacob's maunderings, and the thing Miss Elizabeth wrote. She must have known, but family pride sealed her lips. Griswell, I understand now. The mulatto woman had her revenge, but not as we'd supposed. She didn't drink the black brew old Jacob fixed for her. It was for somebody else, to be given secretly in her food or coffee, no doubt. Then Joan ran away, leaving the seeds of the hell she'd sowed to grow. That, that's not the mulatto woman, whispered Griswell. When I saw her out there in the hallway, I knew she was no mulatto, and those distorted features still reflect a family likeness. I've seen her portrait, and I can't be mistaken. There lies the creature that was once Celia Blassenville. The End All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Pigeons from Hell. And the title is ludicrous. It's, it's, it's comical. It's silly. It's campy, even. But the story isn't. I feel like the story holds up pretty well. The story works. Now, whether my reading did perfect justice to the story or not, that's up to you. The story has been available in many forms for many years now, and there are other readings of it out there. I think there was one on YouTube, but with really low quality audio, kind of like what you're hearing from me right now. And so I had decided to sit down and record it, yay, these many months ago. And the episode would long have since dropped, and I, I probably would have put my reading up on YouTube because that was during that period when I was doing that, before I stopped. I refocused almost entirely on audio after a brief foray into video. But during that stretch when I was doing videos, I started to get better at it. They started to go a little bit faster. I started to enjoy it. And I thought, you know what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna sit down and I'm going to do a quote unquote live reading of one of my own stories. And I think that that will be entertaining to people. They can see how I do what I do. And I chose know when to walk away, know when to run as the story that I was going to sit down and record. And then my camera broke. More specifically, my nephew broke the camera. I ordered a new camera and it didn't come. And uh, when I finally got the camera, I no longer wanted to do this. I, I, I had stopped with the videos long enough. I, I, was, I, I was not comfortable with it. I've never been comfortable with seeing myself on video. I like hearing myself. I think I can control how I sound, but I can't control how I look. Does that make sense? So I stopped. But I, in the back of my mind, it still seems like a good idea, and it's something I could have done last night had I thought of it. Oh, well. So anyhow, 
Robert E. Howard was, if not the greatest, among the greatest pulp writers of the 1920s, 1930s. He was probably the most prolific, most successful, at least for a stretch of time there in the 30s. And I read up a bit about him recently because there was a biopic where Vincent D'Onofrio played Howard and Renee Zellweger plays this young, dubiously attractive writer who falls in love with him, but he's got his issues, they never really get together, then he dies. Spoiler alert, the, the film is called The Whole Wide World, and it's from, I'd say, 96, and I, I didn't entirely enjoy the film, but it's based on her writings. The, the, the young lady, once she was no longer a young lady, she wrote about her friendship with Robert E. Howard. And the film was based off of this book that she published at, at the end of her life. And I found it interesting because it portrayed Howard as very bipolar, you know, as, as really, really big or glum, really, really kind of mean or sensitive. And it never came out and said, you know, there was something wrong with Howard's mind, with, with his psychology. But you inferred it. And so I, I thought, well, I'm going to do some reading about this guy. And we don't know. We don't know what was wrong with him if something was wrong with him or if he was just a suffering artist he would write in these manic spurts of frenetic energy and he was a big guy he didn't have a lot of friends he seemed socially backward and he was blunt and would say things that you're not supposed to say that would hurt people's feelings or would sever relationships but he also wrote many letters and he seemed eloquent and very passionate in these letters. But the man killed himself. He uh, was young when he killed himself. And the magazine Weird Tales, which was the biggest supporter of his work, which was the biggest fan of his work, they, they often bought these stories from him. They bought the first Conan, the Barbarian stories, from him. They ran Pigeons from Hell more than a year after Howard had died because they had such a backlog of stories from him that they were running and they had a really thick backlog of payments that they owed him when he died. And the, the article that I read talked about the inflation, adjusted for inflation, how much money did Howard make each year from the pulps? And how much money did Weird Tales owe him? And it's an unbelievable amount of money. <laughs> Howard, I think, at his height of popularity, made, not adjusted for inflation, about what I make each year. And that's great. That's amazing. That's inspiring. He was one of these guys who would sell these stories as fast as he could write them. And so 
He would write under pseudonyms. He would submit to multiple publications. He had various characters like Cull the Conqueror and Solomon Cain that he would try and do a new story of as often as he could. It's really an example of how you can make it as a writer, of, of how to get your work out there and be successful. He had plenty of rejections too, don't get me wrong. But I, I guess when I said he was an example, I just meant, you know, he's an example to me of just keep keep putting it out there, put out more out there, put out more and more and more and see what sticks. And eventually, maybe it'll all start to stick. I don't know. I, I say he's an inspiration, but the man was deeply disturbed. His mother was ill for a good stretch of his life and... He doted on his mother. He lived with his mother until the day he died. And according to the movie, The Whole Wide World, he, he wouldn't allow himself to go out and have relationships, to go out and pursue his own personal fulfillment because he wanted to be with his mother. He owed it to his mother. He wanted to see her get better. And what happened is that the family doctor came over and he told Howard and his father that if she was terminal, she was not going to get better. She was going to die. And Howard went to his room and he typed a note and he went out to his car and he shot himself. And uh, his mother outlived him in that way. And you do really feel for the father in the scene. It's amazing that they do a clever thing in the film. I didn't particularly like the film. It's not one that I would recommend. It was no fun and it was, I hate to use this word, but it was kind of gross. But there's one moment of brilliance where Renee Zellweger's character, the love interest character, she's gone off to graduate school. This is after she and Howard have sort of had a falling out and she gets a telegram and we don't see what the telegram says, but we see her go and start to write a letter to Robert. And she stops after like the second sentence and crumples it up. And then we see the telegram is that Robert Howard killed himself. And I felt like that worked so well because it undercuts your expectations. If she's writing him a letter, then whatever this telegram says is not that he's dead. It's something happened. Maybe he got married. Maybe he's fallen ill. Maybe he's coming to town. Maybe he sent the telegram and he tells her that he loves her. You know, any number of things, but not that he's died. I thought that that really kicked me in the pants and it, it worked, whereas a lot of the other parts of the movie didn't. Let's see. I, I don't know if this is telling tales out of school or not. But I've got a friend who really loves Robert E. Howard. And he told me that he had the aspiration of one day owning a first edition hardcover of Howard's work, of owning a book that Robert E. Howard might have held in his hand. I don't remember if he said he wanted a signed first edition or not, but it must have been because he wanted to know that Robert E. Howard had touched this book and now it was his. And I felt bad 
when he said that, because that's not ever going to come to pass, because none of Howard's books were ever released in hardcover during his lifetime. His greatest success came after he died, and he wasn't around to enjoy it. The very first collection of his short stories was published posthumously. None of the Conan stories were published in collections until he was dead. And so I guess the best you could do would be to get a signed Weird Tales or something like that. But who knows if something like that exists. The man didn't have, he didn't experience fame in the way that we perceive it. I'm sure there was never a signing. You know what I'm saying? If he ever signed autographs for people, it would have been somebody mailing him a copy of something and saying, would you sign this? Right? And, and yeah, that that is sad. There's, you know, whenever somebody dies young, you know, there's a heartbreak to that because of the, lo the lost potential. But also there's a romance to that because they will never be old. They will never be past their prime. They will never be has-beens. James Dean will always be young. Marilyn Monroe will always be beautiful. I don't know, that's, that's something, I guess it's a double-edged sword. I mean, James Dean didn't live to see himself a big star because all of his success came after his death. But Marilyn Monroe saw herself become, you know, this icon of sex and glamour. And by all accounts, she hated that. I don't know. There's a benefit to fame and there's a benefit to anonymity, just as there are drawbacks to both. This story is one that I had never read. In fact, I never read the story through until yesterday when I recorded it. Stephen King talked about it in Dance Macabre, which was his nonfiction book. I'd say it was from like 80 or 81, uh, where he just talked about the history of modern horror, you know, starting with like Frankenstein, the book, and going up to, geez, Dawn of the Dead, probably, you know, up to the late 70s. And he had sort of dismissed Howard, you know, as this hack fantasy writer. But he also recognized that Pigeons from Hell was this outlier. He felt like it was one of the best horror short stories of the 20th century and talked about it in his book. Still, there were so many things that he referred to in his book that I never sought out. The one that I do remember checking out was Ghost Story. He talked about Peter Straub's Ghost Story in that book. And after I read it, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna read that. And he talked about Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. And I read that years later. He talked about I Am Legend. And I own a hardcover first edition of I Am Legend because I loved that book so much. This one I'm familiar with because I saw an episode of Thriller. 
which was a late 50s, early 60s anthology show hosted by Boris Karloff. It's a thriller. And they did Pigeons from Hell, and it turned out to be very faithful to the story. But I didn't know that until yesterday. Thriller was kind of an Alfred Hitchcock Presents type show that was standard, run-of-the-mill. Every once in a while there would be a good episode, but it was usually just all right. But the Pigeons from Hell episode did stand out as being very, very good. And I remember there being another, like, supernatural-based episode of Thriller that I really liked. I wonder if they felt like a straight-out horror series would not play that they had to, to have like crime stories, revenge stories, you know, murder, mystery kind of things. And if they wanted to throw in a horror story, they could get away with it if it was benched in suspense. I don't know, or, or maybe they just said, you know, we'll, we'll do whatever we want. Maybe we'll do a science fiction story in here. Maybe we'll do a period horror. Maybe we'll do a mystery. Maybe we'll do a, a noir kind of thing. Twilight Zone, you know, which is from the same era and was much, much, much more successful. I mean, there I don't think there's ever been an anthology show as successful as Twilight Zone. It would do a comedic episode, and it would do a sci-fi episode, and it would do a horror episode, and it would do a nostalgic episode, and it would do a war episode, and it would do a, like, heartwarming episode and I think that that was because Rod Serling just wanted to do the best short stories, adaptations of the best short stories that he could find. And then also he just wanted, he wanted what he wanted. You know, Twilight Zone was not easily pigeonholed when it first came out. No pun intended with the pigeons, sorry. Of, uh, you know, what is this show? You know, this is a show about the fantastic. It's the show with horror and suspense and sci-fi and comedy and drama. And there were a couple of Western episodes of The Twilight Zone. And there were some that didn't have twist endings, and there were some that did. It's a hard show to define. I know they've, they've done a revival of it. I, I assume that it's on right now. I never saw a single episode of it. And hopefully they did the same there, where they've got a romantic episode and they've got a really dark gothic episode and they've got a science fiction episode and they've got one that has a happy ending and one that doesn't just so you can't predict what Twilight Zone is going to be Thriller I saw every episode of Thriller I think it only went one season but maybe it went two and I remember very few of them I do remember how charming Karloff was uh, in those I wonder if in the late 50s and early 60s, there was a fear of being too out there, of too scary or too shocking. And they didn't want to offend anybody and they didn't want to rock the boat too much. Whereas I believe Serling didn't care. He felt like drama's power was in shocking and making people question their stances and their realities and pointing at something that's wrong in the world and saying, hey, this is wrong, guys. Only if we recognize that it's wrong can we do anything about it. 
I guess that brings us to Pigeons from Hell again. Marshall told me, you know, I, I wouldn't run it if it's got these elements in it. And I know that there were stories or pieces that he considered running and he decided against because of their themes or because the era in which they were written made them problematic. And I, I, I know specifically about the gold bug, it being one that he struggled with. Are we going to run the gold bug or not on Journey Into because it has racist, un, not undertones to it, it, it deals with race. But it deals with race from the perspective of the late 1800s, and that's not the same as a Quentin Tarantino movie in, in, in the year 2000 that has the N-word in it a bunch. Or at least it shouldn't be. We've got to take context into consideration, take the world in which it was written into consideration, and... Listen, I, I, I'm going to give you a warning about that word. I'm going to play you just a tiny excerpt from my original recording of Pigeons from Hell that includes that. That way, at least I, I, I will use a tiny bit of that recording and it wasn't all a waste. And then let's examine it. So, so you know, skip ahead one minute if you don't want to hear that word. My name is Buckner. I'm sheriff of this county. Took a nigger over to the county seat in the next county and was riding back late. He swung off his horse and stood beside Griswell, shorter than the lanky New Englander, shorter than the lanky New Englander, but much harder knit. I've seen men who swore they'd seen a flock of pigeons perched along the balusters just at sundance. Just at sundown. I've seen men who swore they'd seen a flock of pigeons perched along the balusters just at sundown, said Buckner slowly. Niggers, all of them, except one man. The niggers say they can see the pigeons, but no nigger would pass along. Jesus, dude. Now we're a minute later. So the sheriff is basically the hero, yet he uses that word and... In our 2019 perspective, only certain people would use that kind of word. It says something about a person if he uses that word. And can you have this character be the hero if he uses that word in 2019? And I guess that's for you to answer. I, I personally think it's probably not going to work. I mean, if you've got a character like Clint Eastwood's character in Gran Torino, who is a racist, but eventually he opens his eyes and he becomes less racist and he has an arc, then I think that that can still work. But there are people that are super sensitive to that kind of racism, to the, that kind of language. And maybe it makes the character irredeemable. Or maybe it just makes it impossible to enjoy. That word, you know, more than any other word, has become synonymous with hate. And... All right, I, I guess I'll tell this story. When I lived in Los Angeles, I was part of a writer's group. And we would meet every other Wednesday... Wednesday. 
there was a lady that was part of the writer's group and she lived in a an apartment complex that had a clubhouse you want to say it had a a place where the tenants could get together and watch movies and it had bookshelves and you could go there and listen to music or play games or whatever and she would reserve it every other Wednesday for the writers group and we would come and there was a rotation there was a schedule of who got to share their work and have it critiqued that week and I think we would have our names on like an email list and she would let everybody know for the next week who was up. And I was very much the way that I am now with writing. I was sporadic. I was undependable. Whenever I would get the email from her that I was up, that I needed to share, I'd be like, oh my gosh, oh no, what do I find? You know, I I would sit down and a lot of times I would write just for that because I, I, I do well with deadlines I need a a fire lit under my arse. I don't know why I shared that part with you. I did write a story about that writer's group that I always intended to share on the outcast, and maybe one day I will, and then I can go into detail, or I can probably tell that damned story again. The whole point I was telling you it for was because there there was a black guy that was part of our group, and he wrote, a screenplay and, you know, was bringing sections of the screenplay for us to critique and to talk about. And he asked me because I was, I'm not going to say I was the best actor, but let's say I was the most committed actor in the group. They would often give me like the big flashy roles or whatever to read because they knew that I would give it my all. And he gave me the part of this, the main bad guy in this action, urban action thriller this urban action screenplay that he wrote but he didn't warn me that it had the n-word in it so we all sat down and we start reading you know acting out the parts and i see that i've got it on the next page and i've got it more than once and i thought oh no gosh what do i do And, you know, there were a couple of religious folks in the group that if there was, you know, a religious epithet in there, they would they would just, you know, blanket. Some people would they would be babyish about it and, and, you know, just go blank. You know, there were other people that would just say effing and just swap out the word. And so I, I didn't know if I should do that or if I should read it. And. Here came time for me to do my part. And I put on this voice of this guy that had all of this hate in him. And they're like, we're going to bring him down. And I went ahead and I said the word. And I said it multiple times. And then there was kind of a silence before the next actor delivered their lines. And I looked over at the black guy, at the writer... And he he had a big smile on his face and he gave me a nod. And then we went on. And of course, you know, there there are more uh, N-words later on. And and so I felt like, okay, the nod is him giving me permission. But at the same time, I was just like, dang, dude, I that word is so fraught with history and weight to it. 
that I could understand somebody saying, you know, absolutely not. Not under any circumstance am I going to say that word. Because how might I be perceived? So afterward, he came up to me. And he was just like, oh, Rich, that was great. That was perfect. That's exactly. I saw Willem Dafoe doing that part. But you did it just, just, just like I saw it in my head. And I appreciated that he said that. And I said, yeah, I, I was a little worried, you know, about that word. And he's like, yeah, oh, no, 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 it was great. But I wished that he had warned me beforehand so that I could talk to him about it. And just, you know, have his permission or whatever, because there was that moment. And I, I, we're talking about this word, and, and it's just, there is no word in the English language that is so, that has the baggage that the N-word has. And I, I, you know, in the back of my mind, it was just like, what if these people are looking at me as though, oh, well, he, he's really relishing this. You know, he's selling that line too well kind of thing. And I, I don't, you know, I have relatives that use that word. And I think to them it's just a word, but I remember being in places in LA where the majority of the people I was with were black. And there were only a couple of white people, or there was a team that I was on at work. And it was the team and everybody on the team was black except for me. And I remember when I would go out with them or be with them, we would all get along. But the whole time I wondered if they were looking at me and saying, you know, he's just pretending that he likes us or he's, you know, he's not really one of us. I felt like they accepted me, but I, I never knew for sure because there's always that. It's like, what if they were thinking, is he one of them? Is he one of those people? You know, is he a closet racist? And I, I, maybe I'm oversensitive about that, but we're in an era right now where sensitivity is running high. And it's, it's running high in every ethnic group. But I wouldn't want people to think that I am a white supremacist or that I think that a certain kind of person is better than another group. And that, you know, that's what racism is. We have spun it so that in our heads, racism means whatever you want it to mean. Or the most culturally accepted definition of racism is that you think one of the races is inferior or that a person is inferior because of their race. I've used that word, the N-word, in a couple of stories. I it was in a sidekick's journey where I had the black character who had been rescued by the lean rider and he came to town and he loved the lean rider. They were friends and he used that word referring to himself. And there was a moment when I was developing that character where I was trying to decide how racist are the people in Trueno, Arizona in 1896. And I decided, well, they're kind of racist, but not spectacularly so. And so I never felt like there was any need for one of the townsfolk. And it, 
let's be honest, it would have been the deputy, because the deputy was a character I didn't like, who would have used that word. And ultimately, I didn't do that. I had that character use the word describing himself. And even that may be offensive to people. Even that may have stepped over the line for you, the listener. I mean, you, you can decide. I felt like in context, this is a sympathetic character and this is a character that I like. And I think he'll be back. I, in the back of my mind, I have multiple Ben Park stories that I'd still like to write. If I can live another 30 or 40 years, they will get written. And if I can change my personality so that I write like it's a job instead of write like it's something to do if I have a few minutes worth of energy at the end of the day, then I will get to them before the next 30, 40 years. But, you know, if a story that I've written has a bad word in it, has the F word in it, has, you know, whatever other curse word in it, I don't usually feel the need to apologize. I have a lot of stories with racial slurs in them. I grew up around racial slurs, and I guess I should apologize in saying that a lot of racial slurs are just funny to me. But to whomever is being ridiculed or discriminated against with those racial slurs, I'm sure they're not funny. Well, I don't know. Dude, the, let, let's go back to Pigeons from Hell. The main character, the, the, the point of view character, is this northerner, this New Englander, who has come to the South and as, a, as an alien, or rather, everything in the South is alien to him. The post-Civil War South has, I guess it's the opposite of glamour to it, to this viewer. And I wonder if that's Howard's point of view. He was from Texas, and in my mind, that's not entirely removed from the South, but it is what it is. But, you know, he was having the sheriff character use this word as just a casual thing. I, I didn't feel like he had a great disdain for black people in the way that a character that used that word would today. The, the redneck sheriff that Rod Steiger plays in In the Heat of the Night. You know, that's from 20 years later, right? He's a racist character, but he's not an entirely unsympathetic racist character. And, and he sort of opens his eyes in the same way that Eastwood does, like I said. But I don't know that you could have a character like that in a movie today. A character that's that, that uses that word and is that hateful toward blacks is immediately a villain in our eyes. Last year there was a movie called uh, Black Klansman. Spike Lee made that movie and it got some Oscar nominations and it was enjoyable, but I felt like the KKK members in that movie, they were cartoonish. They were buffoons. And I don't know if that was intentional to take some of the shock value away from them or if that was a commentary on racists in America today, in 2018, that Spike Lee is making, saying, you know, this is what y'all look like when you open your mouths. The story, Pigeons from Hell, doesn't seem 
particularly racist to me. The villain of the piece, the murderer is a white person, right? Under a voodoo curse. And if we think about it, it's kind of a chickens have come home to roost story in a way where this woman was a slave owner and particularly brutal even after slavery was abolished toward her slaves but they get the last laugh she gets her comeuppance that's one way to interpret it you could choose to interpret it in a different way or to say you know oh the, the primitive voodoo savage superstitions from the old world are alive and well, and that's a form of racism. You know, that, that's probably a fair criticism if you choose to criticize it in that way. But were the story filled with that racial slur every time the sheriff were referring to the black characters, you couldn't separate it. The race issue would be brought to the forefront more so than the horror issue, more so than anything else because of the shock value of that word. That's just my opinion. And you can agree or disagree. But it's my opinion as the storyteller that Marshall was right, that if the word had remained, it would have eclipsed everything else in the story. It would have made the story way too problematic. I don't personally find the character of Jacob to be racist or to be insensitive or to be problematic. But again, that's my point of view. And the voice that I chose to do for Jacob is the voice that I felt like, you know, that's going to sound like I see the character in my head. And that is the narrator's job of the audiobook. If they are the kind of narrator that I am that tries to develop a voice for each of the characters. We've discussed this before multiple times and we will continue to discuss it as long as I do audiobooks. It's not the only way to do narration. The narrator for Blood and Fire, Fire and Blood, is Simon Vance. And he's an English audiobook narrator with a very powerful voice, but he doesn't choose to do accents or do characters or do different voices for the different characters when he's narrating. And it's still a good listen, hearing one of Simon Vance's narrations. I mean, he's, he's won multiple awards. What have you done, Derek? Nothing! What have you done, Derek? Nothing! You've done nothing! feel so weird quoting that. So I'll just play the clip instead. That, but that's not how I would choose to narrate. That's not how I do it. And I've got a novella that I wrote, a lovely singing voice. And I always wanted to produce that in audio. I still do. I like the story. I think it's fine. And I would love to hear it in audio. But the protagonist, the main character is a 12-year-old black girl. The main antagonist is like an 10 or 11-year-old white girl. And I just don't feel like I am the best pick for the narration on that. It's the only one of my novellas where I don't feel like I can do it 
justice like someone else could. Is that, does that sound too arrogant? When I'm doing newfound fame, or I'm doing a mark on the sky, or I'm doing 10,000 coffins, I know how the lines are to be interpreted. And every once in a while, I'll get a part where I typed it wrong, or there's a missing sentence, or it's just badly written, and I have to interpret how that's supposed to be read. And because I'm the writer, I can change things or add a new line or add a she said. But when it's somebody else's work, I can't. <laughs> I was about to say I can't do that. I've still done it. In many cases, I have to do it. Even in Pigeons from Hell, whoever typed up the version that I was reading had quotation marks in the wrong place a couple of times. And I had to correct that with my narration, or I had to interpret it in my narration. If I gave a lovely singing voice to someone and said, would you do the narration on this for me? The weaknesses in my own writing would be so apparent to me any time that the narrator didn't perform it exactly the way that I felt like it should be in my head. I'd be like, oh, okay, if I had written that better, she would have said it just like I wanted it said. That is a drawback to doing full cast. Whenever Big and I do a full cast story on the Dune Steef, there are always, yeah, without exception, there are always moments where the voice actor interpreted it differently than how I interpreted it. And I don't know how much that bothers Big Anklevich, but to me, it's bothersome. And there's only ever been like once or twice that I've actually asked the voice person to redo the line. And it's usually because they say the line wrong or they miss part of it. And I just, I feel like it harms the story. But, you know, I mentioned Simon Vance having all these awards. And what do you have? What have you done, Derek? Nothing! You've done nothing! <laughs> You've done nothing! I've been doing this for over 10 years now, regularly. You can say that I've gotten very good, or I've gotten good, or I've gotten better, but I have enough experience where I feel like, okay, I know what I'm doing, and I know what I want, and I know what I like, and I know what sounds good. I recognize that that is subjective. In 2013, when I first started to do the audiobooks, remember? I would do anybody's audiobook for free just to get my foot in the door, just to get some work under my belt, hoping that the paid gigs would come rolling in. And a couple of paid gigs have, but for the most part, it was just me paying my dues, learning the craft. And I've told this story before, but I've never used his name, and I'm still not going to use his name. But there was a established sci-fi writer that was taking auditions for one of his books, and I auditioned for it. And he sent me an email back saying, not only was he not going to quote-unquote hire me to do this book, but he would never hire me to do any of his work because of how much he hated the way that I did my narration. I've talked about this before because it really upset me and it was early enough, it was right there when I was first trying to be an audiobook narrator 
where I thought, oh my gosh, maybe I don't have what it takes. This guy, he's been on Escape Pod. This guy's been on Starship Sofa. This guy has probably heard my voice on podcasts before or he knows his shit. And he is saying he wouldn't even have me do his narration for free. It upset me for about five minutes. Five minutes I stewed and felt sorry for myself and questioned my own talents and questioned my ability and questioned reality. And then I decided, I made the choice to say, no, fuck this guy. This is just his opinion. I do good work. He is, what does Mar Marty McFly say? He's an asshole. I don't care what Tannen says. I don't care what anyone says. I chose that and I wrote it down as a journal entry that day so that I would never forget it. And I put a little note and I said, never audition for anything that this guy ever does. He is an asshole. Let's move on. He's an asshole. I don't care what Tannen says. And I don't care what anybody else says either. And I think that it was wise. I think that it was right. I guess that's me patting myself on the back. I, I don't mean to do that. I'm sorry. I, I will, I think, if I find the energy, release this on YouTube. And I guess we'll see what people have to say about my reading. There are other stories from this era, from the pulp era, that are in the public domain that I could do. And maybe it will be a nice thing, a nice interruption in me presenting my own work. Of course, I should present my own work on this show. Like Dr. O did, this podcast, of course, owes a great debt to Cory Doctorow or Cory Doctorow's podcast. And yeah, I, I'm going to do it. I, I found a notebook the other day and it had like 80% of a story in it. And the last 20% was just, this story can end any number of ways. Here is how it might end. Here's another way it might end. And I looked at that and I was just like, wow, I vaguely remember writing this story. But why didn't I just choose one of these endings and have another finished story? You know, I think I'm going to go in and get a big drink of water because I've been sitting in the sun in the car finishing this. The battery died on my recorder and I had to redo part of the episode. And so I've just been, I've plugged it into the, the car and I'm sitting roasting in the car until I, I'm done. But I'm going to go to the library and I'm going to type up this story. And that'll be a story that you will hear in a future Rish Outcast and then I'll tell you about it. I just told you about it. But you'll, when you hear it, say, oh, this is that story. I remember when Rich talked about this back in 2019. I hope that you enjoyed Pigeons from Hell. If so, and you would like to hear more Robert Howard stuff, I would be happy to do another one. I would love to do a Conan one. Somebody mentioned the other day that he had heard me doing my Con uh, the very first Conan story. I did two Conan stories. And I never released the second one, ever. But I really liked those first two Conan stories enough to say, okay, I'm going to do a bunch of these. They're in the public domain. I can release them. Why don't I? Sorry. 
what I was saying was thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the story. And more than that, I hope you enjoyed my narration. Let me know. Feel free to support me on Patreon if you want this show to continue. Because there's a dollar sign attached to it, I have made it a priority. Does that make sense? So you can help make this show a priority in a way that my other shows are not. This has been Rish Outfield. And the next time that you see a pigeon, steer clear. Good night. This is fake Sean Connery. And you can support me and the boy over at patreon.com. Encourage us to put out more shows by donating a dollar an episode. Or more if you've got more money than cents. Which, I suppose, some people have. And that's it for the Rish Outcast, which is produced under a Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution No Derivatives License, which means Rish owns it. Unless you stole it. And it's free of charge. Unless you paid for it. And Rish has been lying all this time. The music in the show was by Kevin McLeod of the No, uh, actually, that was me too. What? It, it was just me whistling, and then I played with it a little. Cool, huh? No, it was not cool. It was from Incompetech.com, also under a Creative Commons license. No, 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 seriously. I, I usually use Kevin McLeod's music. Because it's under a Creative Commons, Commons non-commercial, non-commercial 3.0, 3.0 license. Yeah, but not this time. This, this time it was by me. How dare you? Honestly, it was me. You, sir, are a liar and a scoundrel. And this podcast is over. Well, I, I agree with you there. Then, as he emerged from the clinging cobwebs of his recent sleep, he remembered... Uh, yeah, he did. Buckner's light played... Buckner's light playing about the... Sh- Buckner's light playing about the circular... Poopy baby. Hey, in fact, we will talk about it later. I'm going to run... HP... Not HP Lovecraft. Way better than HP Lovecraft. What's his name? I'm going to run Robert E. Howard's Pigeons 
from hell. Okay, I guess I gotta do all of that over. I forgot that the battery was almost dead on this thing. Shoot. Uh, so and, and yeah, I don't know where I got cut off. It, it was only like two or three minutes, but still, I don't wanna do the two or three minutes over. Somebody criticized my reading of, I wanna say the Reploids when it was available on YouTube by saying, yeah, I guess the, the narration was okay. I sure would have liked it better if the guy didn't start every sentence screaming and then whisper at the end. And I couldn't tell if this guy was an asshole or not. And, and I apologize if I've already told this story. If I've already told this story, I will cut this out and it'll be an outtake. But if not, you're hearing it. I couldn't tell if this guy was just being an asshole. Because sometimes you'll get, okay, a lot of times you'll get this on YouTube. People posting just to be contrary. People posting because maybe they can get a rise out of somebody. Maybe it's fun to call somebody a homo and see if they react. You know, people feel powerless and being in an anonymous place where you can say whatever you want makes people feel powerful. But I heard the words that he said and during my narration of The Forsaken and even some of my narration in this last night, I was consciously trying not to be very loud at the beginning of a sentence and get quieter and quieter by the end of the sentence. And I don't know if I actually do that. I've not noticed whether I do that or not, but I'm trying not to do it if I do do it. 